Welcome to the Future Belongs to Creators. I'm your host, Nathan Berry. I'm the CEO at ConvertKit, and I'm joined by my co-host, Barrett Brooks. He's the COO here at ConvertKit, and we're on a mission to help creators earn a living. This show is about turning anxious energy into creative output during times of uncertainty. All right, welcome to episode 20 of The Future Belongs to Creatives. I'm Nathan Berry, and I'm back with Barrett Brooks. Guess who's back? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. I missed you. I haven't talked to you in like four, five, five days. Which is quite odd for us. How you doing? I'm green. The sky is blue. The sun is shining. (laughs) The grass is green. The flowers are out. The trees are blooming. Uh, No, seriously. I I worked actually really hard on my days off. I did a lot of yard work this weekend, um, which was quite enjoyable. And taking a couple days off definitely made it feel like a long, long break between work days. Um, yeah, let's see. I'm, my hair's, I'm wondering how, how long my hair has to get before you can start seeing the grays over here. Uh, yeah. In the mirror now, they are quite prominent. But I did get a hair clipper, which my wife used to kind of straighten up my neck. So I no longer feel like okay, a werewolf. That's good. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, in more relevant things like work and creatorship and all of that, I, uh, I published an article last week and uh, starting an eight-part series um, about the factors that lead to meaningful work for my email list, which I'm really excited about. And uh, the behind-the-scenes secret there is that I've had this outline for a book on meaningful work, which I think has kind of been like the last 10 years of my career is thinking about yep. that from different angles. Had this outline in Scrivener, which is a writing app um, forever. Like it's pretty detailed. I know what I want to write about. And the first chapter gives an overview of this like formula or a thesis for the factors that add to meaningful work. And um, so I'm going to do a little email course. I'm going to give away to everyone who joins my list as a way of writing the first chapter. So I get like that feeling of publishing. It gives a benefit to my site, which is a reason to opt in beyond just opt in. And uh, I will have written the first chapter of the book. So, hey, I'm working on that. That's awesome. That's that's all aside from just like running, of course. (laughs) How are you doing? (laughs) Oh man, Uh, I'd say I'm I'm yellow, maybe red today. I don't know. But now Uh, you're talking to me, you're green, right? Oh, obviously, greener than green. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Let's see. Today, you know, you sit down at your desk and you're like, today is not my day. I don't know. It it was kind of one of those days Uh, for no apparent reason. I have like all this anxious energy. I feel like this is like a very pivotal moment in the world and in the world, in business, in ConvertKit, everything. And I feel like we've done everything we possibly can to prepare for it, but I still have this feeling of like we can or should be doing more and I don't know what that is. And I also feel like it's way bigger of a moment than everyone is pretending that it is. Everyone's like, oh yeah, you know, like, couple more weeks, quarantine will be over. We'll get back to it. Yeah. The economy will take a little dip, but look, the stock market, it's all going to be fine. Like it. And I have this feeling of like, we're sitting back and, and still waiting for the, I don't know, the worst part of it to hit probably not the worst part of the pandemic, but the worst part of the recession. And, and, uh, from a convertkit business strategy perspective, we should be doing more moving faster. There's some product positioning stuff that we still don't have. Right. You know, when it comes to landing pages and funnels and our free plan and all of that. And then also like, the uncertainty of you're certain things are coming, but uncertainty of to what level and, and how many will be good and how many will be bad and, and all that. So anyway, that's a, that's a lot, but, uh, 
<laughs> I haven't gotten that much done today, but I have taken lots of random notes. So when in doubt, journal. So that's what I've been doing. Well, I definitely support that. And I think our, our coaches at Reboot certainly support that too. Just break that ish out. <laughs> I like how you censor yourself for the show. That's great. <laughs> I'm trying so hard. I have this horrible habit. I, uh, my mom, I wonder if my mom listens to the show. Uh, my mother, she cussed a lot growing up. She was, she's a business person and a manager of, of sales teams. And, you know, she, she just cussed as a part of her communication strategy. And, um, I just picked that up early. Like, I think <laughs> I first cussed at 11 or something like that. My mom was like, what are you doing? You can't do that. And I'm like, well, you do it. What do you mean? <laughs> and so we had this whole conversation and for years, for years, she quit cold Turkey. She did not cuss around me for years on end, which wow. would be really hard, but I could see how my kids saying a cuss word might make me do it. Yep. And then it, it came roaring back once I was like a grown adult <laughs> where it was fine for me. To cuss. <laughs> I, so I've only met your mom once, but from everything that I know about her, I could totally imagine, like, she's just strikes me as like a force of nature. And so I could totally see her being like, I'm going to change that about myself right now. And like having all of the willpower necessary to do that and being such in control that she's like, great. I just want to do that around Barrett anymore, around the kids anymore. You know? Oh man. It's so funny. Anyway. So uh, yes, I'm doing my best in the show <laughs> to keep it friendly. Oh man. Well, uh, let's dive into our topic for today. Yes. So this is a topic it comes from an Ira Glass quote. Maybe we'll just start by reading the quote. This is from Ira Glass. Uh, nobody tell, tells this to people who are beginners. I wish someone told told me. All of us who do creative work, we get into it because we have good taste. But there's this gap. For the first couple of years you make stuff, it's just not that good. It's trying to be good. It has potential. But it's not. But your taste, the thing that got you into the game is still killer. And your taste is why your work disappoints you. A lot of people never get past this phase. They quit. Most people I, did, I know who do interesting, creative work went through years of this. We know our work doesn't have the special thing that we wanted to have. We all go through this. And if you're just starting out or you're still in this phase, you got to know it's normal. And the most important thing you can do is do a lot of work. Put yourself on a deadline so that every week you will finish one story. It is only, going, it is only by going through a volume of work that you will close that gap and your work will be as good as your ambitions. And it took longer to figure out how to do this than anyone I've ever met. It's going to take a while. It's normal to take a while. You've just got to fight your way through it. Love that quote. It's got to be one of the most impactful quotes I've ever heard in my life. He, uh, he's, it's in a studio. I mean, he's an audio person. So if you've never listened to Ira Glass, um, creator of This American Life, he's like the, he's created the PayPal mafia of audio. Right. So the PayPal mafia was this group of people who worked at PayPal early on, who all made a bunch of money and went on to go do other things. Elon Musk was a part of that. Peter Thiel, a bunch of other people. Uh, Reed Hoffman. So LinkedIn, YouTube, uh, Yelp, Yammer, like everything came out of there. Just like the entire whole generation of all the companies you use now came from a dozen people that all worked at PayPal which is pretty incredible. Well, Ira Glass has had a very similar effect where he's mentored all of these people. He's had producers work for him. He's had talent work for him who then go out and make their own stuff. And um, he's been kind of the driving force behind a lot of a lot of the classic kind of podcast audio that mm -hmm. helped fuel the movement towards um, independent people being able to make podcasts. 
And when I heard that quote, there was a, another one I shared this weekend on Twitter. Um, maybe I'll actually, uh, I'll share it real quick. But um, these two quotes just got at, it was like feeling very seen, feeling very mm-hmm. understood when I read it. And I have this constant frustration. So the other quote is from E.B. White. It says, I arise in the morning torn between a desire to improve the world and a desire to enjoy the world. This makes it difficult to plan the day. And if I had to describe two (laughs) sources of my frustration in life, it would be the gap between wanting to enjoy my life versus improving the world and the gap between my taste and my ability. Those two gaps create all kinds of just this like, it's probably anxiety. It's like, what do I do with this energy right now? But between taste and ability, my problem is always that in my head, I see something. It's not all the way defined. Like I can't always translate it from here to a piece of paper here into a digital Mm -hmm. tool or whatever, but I know I will know it when I see it, which is the worst thing to say when you're working with anyone else on a project. Right. Especially when you're like, that's not it, but I'll know when I'll see it. Keep going. Yes. Right. (laughs) And, um, what I always want to be able to do is I want to be able to create the thing that's in my mind. Right. And I think a lot of creative people feel this. And in fact, I think it's inherent to humans. It's just some of us learn to put that away. Like, I think every person is a creator. They just haven't gotten started yet. That's one of my (laughs) core beliefs. And um, when you turn it on, when that creative gene turns on, we have a vision and early on you suck at making it come to life. And it's really painful when you're at that stage. Yeah. I feel that very intensely. I've seen, felt it all throughout, I think, my creative career. And I've really tried to reference it, like use this to help other people along the way. Because this quote from Ira Glass is the first time that I feel like it put words to this thing that as a creator, I inherently knew of like, oh, okay, I have this thing in my mind. It's going to work like this. And I sit down in Photoshop or um, whatever tool and it comes out and it's just like, well... Yeah, that's the stick figure version of what I dreamed up, you know, and it's just not, it's not the same at all. And so I've had that definitely with code. I've had it with uh, designing iPhone apps over the years where uh, it doesn't come up with the, you know, the feeling that you want to have. It's basically, I was joking earlier, it's the first five years of my design career of like, and it still happens today. Now I just luckily, like I make something, I'm like, this isn't it, but you know what I'm getting at. And then like Dylan and other designers on our team are like, cool. Uh, is this what you had in mind? And I'm like, yes, there it is. Finally, someone more talented came along and made it. But, you know, I feel like this quote and maybe the one I would pair it with is the man in the arena of like those kind of things, basically saying, yep, this is normal. This is harder than you expect. And you're just going to have to push through it. Like Ira Glass is talking about of uh, it's going to take a lot of time. And the only thing you can do is put in that time. Yep, totally. Um, I want to, or I wanted us to go over a couple of examples of our own, kind of maybe a little bit in more detail, because I want to really bring that point home that this is not a, some people have this problem, problem. It's a, everyone has this problem, right? Problem. So this weekend, uh, I've got three examples here. You probably have a couple of your own. Um, we don't have to go through all of them, but I think a couple will will help highlight what this looks like. So this weekend I was re-watching. Actually, I couldn't even, I can't watch it actually because it's too painful for me. But I read, <laughs> I read the transcript of my TEDx talk. And everyone who watches it says it's good. But I 
me watching me six years ago or seven years ago or whenever it was, is just really hard. Mm -hmm. And the reason is that if I read the transcript, I can see where I could have been better. But when I watch it happening, I have like, uh, have you ever heard of the concept dumb chills? No, I haven't. Okay. So dumb chills are when you're watching someone on a TV show and a lot of TV shows will create this tension on purpose. You're watching someone do something that's like, I cannot believe they're doing that right now. And like, you really want it to stop. Yep. So like the marvelous Miss Maisel, where she's standing up and talking at her friend's wedding, I think it was wedding reception afterwards. And it's just a train wreck. It's like, oh no, 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 no. Please stop. Please stop. I had to fast forward through it <laughs> or Ju Ju Julia Louis-Dreyfus and basically anything beep related. So anyways, yep. I get dumb chills when I watch myself back then though, because it's like, oh God, I was trying so hard to be something. What I was trying right. so hard to be was I was trying to be a Dan Pink or an Adam Grant or mm -hmm. any of the kind of like researcher writers that I really look up to, but I didn't yet have enough of a perspective or enough ability, I guess, to be original in my delivery and in my thought process and all of that. And so instead, what I was doing was I was mirroring a lot of what I saw them do really well and taking similar kind of examples. And I acknowledged that I was doing that. Like I called that out. When I look back, it's like, oh man, if I could have like given a phrase to each of the three key points I made that was more memorable or that had more of a hook attached to it. If I could have used examples that weren't just like people I knew, but that really had these deep resonant ties back to the principle rather than just being any old example I could come up with, it would have been a much better talk. And I can see that now, but at the time that was the best I could do. That was the best 15 minutes I could give. And it was a good reflection of where I was at at the time. It's just now I think I would be much better at it, or I like to think I would. It's actually an interesting, it would be an interesting experiment. Yeah. And I, I think the, I mean, this gets away from the examples, but I, I think you couldn't help, but give a better talk today. Right. You know, something that I realized early on, I, I did everything young of like finishing high school early, going to college, all, all of that, starting a business. And I was always so frustrated that everybody cared so much about user, years of experience. And there was one, th one truth that I was starting to understand and get at is that it's not the years of experience, they're the amount of time that has passed by uh, from how good you, you know, when you started to the end, if there's five years in there, that's a factor in how good you are. But what actually matters is the number of repetitions in there, like the number of times that you practice in there. And so I would take something like design and practice like crazy, but it was crammed into a tiny amount of time. And I always felt like, that's ah, not years of experience that matter. It's the amount of practice. And I was right about that, but it was also the years of experience that matter. I just didn't want to accept that. And now that I have a bit more experience, like I, I'm still super young, still super early in my career. Uh, but now I realize, like, oh, I see why people talk about years of experience because it's that exact thing. Like now I think you have so many more examples, your perspective on how to make work meaningful is so much more mature. So much of it is coming from your own life experience rather than from an aggregate of all the things you learned. I had the same thing talking about say like 2012, 2013. I loved reading people who were talking about how to grow software companies. I just hadn't done it yet. And so I was reading Amy Hoy and Patrick McKenzie and Jason Cohen and and all of these people who I really looked up to. And there's even some articles on my blog that are aggregating a lot of these ideas. And I think they're decent articles, but none of it comes from my own experience. It's all, I just learned this thing. I think it's awesome. And if I combine it with this other idea, see how that fits. Isn't that even cooler? 
And, you know, now I have a different perspective because it comes from my own experience in the same way that I think you would have a very different perspective now based on years of your own experience, growing a team to over 50 people, you know, and like all this stuff. So uh, I think this is actually really good. This really is, does tie back in because one of the points we wanted to talk about is how do you close the gap? Mm-hmm. And one of the ways you close the gap is patience. And it's not actually time. It's just that time is the constraint you have to work within to build both sides, both your taste and your ability. So taste comes from exposure. Taste comes from exposure to a wide variety of things. If you look at... um uh, I don't want to make fun of any group. I was going to make fun of kind of like where I grew up and everything, but I'm not going to do that. <laughs> Anyways, if you look at any given like subculture of people and you think, why do they dress like that? Or why do they talk like that? Or why do they whatever? It's because their exposure is limited to that group of people often. And that's what they find to be their taste. It turns out the more you travel, the more you read, the more videos you watch, the more people you interact with, um, the more your taste changes, it expands. And so the more you get exposed to, the less it's about everything you've been exposed to being your taste. And the more it's about how you filter everything you've been exposed to, because it right. can't all add up to just a little bit of taste it, it, you have to like cut a bunch of stuff out to get to something more refined. So time gives you that because the reality is that maybe you only take three or four trips a year. If you're really freaking lucky and have a lot of money and can do that. And so you get exposed to that many new places. Maybe you can only read if you're really disciplined 50 books in a year. Right. And over time it adds up, right? And so it's not that time is the thing. It's just that you can only do so much in a given period of time to build your sense of taste and to build your ability. So, okay, I have a question. Do you think that level of taste is inherent? Like, I guess I, I feel like maybe if I phrase it more of a statement, I feel like I encounter people who I don't feel like have taste. And then I encounter other people where I see the gap and I see like, Oh, I can see that, that you have taste and I can see that the skill just does not match at all. Mm. So maybe on the first side, what do you do? Like, how do you develop that taste? Okay. This is good actually. So exposure is first. You have to be exposed to a lot of things. I would say, This includes people, places, experiences would be my three key drivers, people, places, and experiences. Um, Places is actually kind of just a proxy for cultures, but place is more concrete. If I said cultures, you'd be like, what does that mean? If I say a place, it's like go to Rome and that's very concrete, right? Okay. So the more you get exposed to people, places, and experiences, the more you just have like triggers in your brain that go off. Oh, that was a really nice, whatever. That was a really beautiful home. I remember my parents used to subscribe to magazines. I'm from Georgia originally, things like Garden and Gun or um, Southern Living, things like this. Mm -hmm. And some of those magazines would come and they would do like, uh, they would build a house and they would decorate it in their style and they'd like do tours over the holiday season or whatever. Well, we would go and if you see something there that you like, the key is not just to be like, oh, that was nice and passively experience it. It's to ask yourself, why did I like that so much? Right. What about that experience engaged me so much? What about that teacher's style helped me learn better? What about that writer kept me engaged? So an example of this, half the world, I feel like, has, half the reading world anyways, has read Malcolm Gladwell's work at this point yep. in some form or another. I've read Outliers this weekend. There you go. I don't think a lot of people have taken the time to ask themselves. Number one, a lot of people don't think of themselves as writers. So it doesn't matter 
right? Mm -hmm. But a lot of people who are writers have not taken the time to ask, why do I like Malcolm's writing? And the thing that he talks about is that he uses this principle of finding stories of people who are not famous, but should be. Right. And so what I've come to understand is that I love Malcolm's work because he goes and finds stories I've never heard before. I can't tell you the number of times I've read a book where they talked about Steve Jobs and it was like, I want to throw this thing out the window now. <laughs> yep. you, that was the best example of the thing you're talking about you could find with Steve Jobs, you and every other author ever to write anything. So the key coming back to it is, do you ask yourself, do you analyze what you love mm-hmm. enough to understand how to then apply it to your own life? And I think that is the, the, the step that everyone skips most of the time. So I think I'm going to even add a step before that, because I think there's something that a lot of people don't do. And that is even documenting what they love. This is good, actually. I like this. Because I think a lot of pe- a lot of times, and I'm talking to myself here, I'll go through the world and be like, that was awesome. That was cool. I like that. And not taking the step back and saying like, okay, but why? Why did I like that? And putting something down and saying, okay, this is, this is what I like. And even logging, like I'm really into journals or, you know, decision journals or any of these things. So I can look back on it years later and go, oh, that was so cute that I thought that then, you know, and being able to watch my decisions change over time, but you could actually watch your taste over time. Like I imagine if from when you were 10 until now, every year you like kept an architecture log of like, okay, my dream home is going to look like, and then I think if you did that every year, it'd be fascinating to watch that change. But then Yes. If you logged what it is that you like, what those quality inputs are, and then you start to break down why you like it. And then I think probably the next step is sharing your perspective on that. And I think it's important to not keep that on the inside because one thing that we have between you and I, that I think is really helpful is I say, I have this idea and you know enough about the content that I consume and I'll share of like, and it came, it's an aggregation of uh, Malcolm Gladwell and these five other sources. And so you know where it comes from, but I have to actually put it to the test. And then you go, I like this. I don't like that. You know, and you, you pick it apart. And so my taste has to get refined because it, it encounters the rest of the world. It encounters uh, feedback. Yeah, that's right. And I think sometimes the reality is some people have such an advanced sense of taste that the world isn't ready for it. That's a really hard place to be. I think true original people sometimes encounter this quite a bit where they'll share ideas. You see like painters or writers whose work wasn't appreciated until after they were gone and they were just too far ahead. They saw where the world was going and they, they got out in front of it. That's a whole other thing. I don't, I don't know that either you or I are in that category. Of people. I don't think so. <laughs> we're not qualified to talk about what it feels like. But, um, you know, I think... A part of that is that as your taste develops, I think the people we call eccentric just have a really refined sense of taste in a lot of cases. Mm -hmm. So like from the sports world, Cam Newton, who used to be the quarterback of the Carolina Panthers, he's very involved in the fashion world and he'll show up to his press conferences and he'll, the whole press corps and everyone watching will be like, what is wrong with this person? (laughs) How many concussions has he had? And he's had a lot, which is sad his taste is coming from a different world. It's not coming from the sports world. It's coming from the fashion world. And there he's, he's forward looking. He's not eccentric, but then you bring him into this other world and he's eccentric. And so I've seen that with my own fashion sense over time. It was like, first you figure out how to fit in, right? That's kind of where Mm -hmm. the initial, how do I fit in with the people that I like? And then you get to a point where it's like, okay, I fit in. I'm, I belong now. I don't have to look a certain way to continue to earn that, which is actually true 
to begin with, but we won't get into that today. Right. And then you say, okay, well, how can I be different or original or how can I be authentic? And that's where you get this kind of like changing style over time to your writing, to your music, to your fashion, whatever it is, is you become more and more aligned to your sense of taste with your actual execution. Yeah. I think something else as we break down, closing that gap, right? You, you've built the taste. It's breaking down what you believe, breaking down why what some, someone else has created is good. And then what I would say from the design background is start copying, right? Because then what you can do is start to understand what made something good, right? So what I would do is this typography was the hardest thing for me. And I feel like it's so important in design and, you know, it'd be one of those things like it's, it's just words. Like you just lay it out in a, like you pick a font, you pick a, a font to pair it with and set some line height and let's go. And it never looks as good as what the masters do. And in order to get better at it, what I started doing is copying it exactly where I would pull something up and go, okay, how do I recreate that exactly? And I would, you could even overlay it one on top of the other and you go, oh, they're not using the default letter spacing. And then you get to play around with, you see, oh, that's why that's different. You know, and you start to find these patterns. And I think that, you know, a lot of painters do that as well, right? Where they'll copy something by one of the masters and go, okay, I've got the perspective down. I've got this other, you know, these things. And you realize, okay, there is something really special about how they're mixing their colors, how um, their brushstrokes go. Like it forces you to get into these little details. And I think one thing that can be really challenging early on is when you, as a creator, you believe you have to always create something original. And so I'm starting out and I have this idea for something super original and my skill is here. And I think the only way to get to that, to close that gap is to keep grinding away at that one thing, because I'm not, I'm not going to be famous for copying other people's artwork. I'm not going to be, I'm not going to try to, I'm trying not trying to make the best cover band there is, but instead what you do is still have this really original thing in your head and then copy the masters, copy the people who are doing really, really uh, unique, impressive, high skill things, and then apply that over here on your thing. Okay. I just learned that new skill I'm doing here. You know, listen to uh, Outliers uh, by Malcolm Gladwell this weekend. He talked about the Beatles and how they would go and, and practice for literally thousands of hours playing in Hamburg, Germany um, at all of these basically strip clubs. And you know, they had to fill so much time, like eight hours in a day on stage that they can't just play their own stuff. They had, they had to play everything that was popular. And so, you know, they had to perfect the techniques of all these other musicians to be able to play that person's song just as well as they did. And then when it came time to write more of their own music, they're like, okay, I know how that's done. Here's my own twist on it. And here it's combined and everything else to make this original work. Yeah. I love that. Um, we're running out or we have run out of time. Uh, <laughs> I wrote this article a while back. Maybe we'll do an episode based on it, but uh, called Deconstructing Expertise, Why You Need It and How to Get It. And um, it was about answering this question. How do you build ability? Because, you know, we always used to give this advice. We still give this advice, you and I do, of you got to be ready to invest three years, five years, 10 years mm -hmm. to be successful, to earn a living from uh, original work as a creator. And that always felt a little trite and a little flippant to people who are like in it and trying to make it. But I figured out that what I needed to communicate was why. And it was exactly what we talked about earlier. You just need time to develop the taste and the abilities. And so I wrote this article on expertise and I, and I kind of broke down 
three books that I think are really fantastic for this topic, which are uh, Josh Kaufman's The First 20 Hours, yep. uh, Tim Ferriss's Four Hour Chef, and then Robert Greene's Mastery. And the first step that they all have in common is deconstruction. Looking at the like big skill set that you're trying to build or the big ability you're trying to have, maybe it's making a podcast, maybe it's making music, maybe it's making YouTube videos and deconstructing it into its component parts. So if I'm a YouTuber, writing an outline for content, being on camera, getting good video quality, getting good audio quality, editing. So like all of those things are component skills that add up to being a YouTuber. You can only do one at a time. That's mm -hmm. the thing is you got to really, if you're going to get really good at them, you got to pick it apart and understand which parts really matter. And so like the next step for a lot of them is selecting which of these things make the biggest difference. And let me start there instead of just starting from the beginning. So anyways, I wrote this article. We'll share it in the show notes. I think it's really useful because it kind of breaks down these three different perspectives on building skills or building ability over time. And then how you can apply that to your life, which is how we ultimately close that gap between taste and ability is intentional effort uh, in this kind of like cycle um, over and over and over from where you are today to where you want to be. I really like that because as you brought up the YouTuber example, you know, if we actually break down the skills of making good videos and then which ones have impact, you know, because I, I would measure those. I'm all about making a visual to figure out things, right? So all the skills necessary and then the impact of each one, I think you'd see, right? Audio is more important than video. And you're like, wait, but it's a video. And then you find out. But then as you're going through, you would see one thing that stands out, like it's 10 times more impactful than anything else on the list. And that's storytelling. And so you realize, oh, wait, when it comes to having this thing that matches the ability that I want to create to be the next Casey Neistat or whatever, it's not the editing. It's not picking the great quotes or the music or any of those things, or like, I don't know, being able to do a backflip or whatever cool things Casey Neistat does. You realize, oh, if I want to be on that level, the one part that I really need to focus on is storytelling. And so then you'd be off like le learning from great writers and all that. Okay. What makes a compelling story? Well, everyone else is goofing around with the latest, you know, uh, equipment from Canon. And if you put in the time in the right area first, having done that deconstruction step, then you'd realize that you can actually get ahead by doing something totally different. Yeah. And then you get that layer polish added layer later after you've right. got the hard part down and everyone else is just messing around with the the gear or whatever. Yeah. Love it. Okay. Creator of the day. I like that. That, that was good. Okay. Uh, the creator that I'm going with, uh, his name is Noah. Um, and he does a site called Bulletproof Musician. And we actually have just been looking for ConvertKit customers whose stories we want to tell. And this came across because with the pandemic, we haven't been shooting nearly as many videos. And our uh, filmmaker, Henry, is currently in New York City. And we thought, you know what? The first place he might be able to go to find more stories once the quarantine is lifted is New York. And so uh, Issa was on our team, was looking up more great stories to tell. And, and she came across Noah, who uh, his site's the Bulletproof Musician. And uh, he just basically brings mindset and sports psychology to music. And uh, it's a really cool site, really cool perspective. And I definitely check it out. So bulletproofmusician.com. Love it. 
Uh, my creator of the day is another one from that same effort named Mary from Leather Beast. Uh, Mary teaches people how to make and sell um, quality leather goods. I love businesses like this. Number one, because Mary is a maker herself. She knows how to do this stuff. And that earns you a ton of credibility. It helps you develop your taste, helps you develop your ability. And then she's turned around and she's teaching it to other people. So it's really specific. It's for one type of entrepreneur um, or creator who wants to make leather goods. And uh, she's already done it herself, which gives her a ton of credibility. So anyways, Mary from Leather Beast is mine today. And resource of the day from each of us, what you got? So this is just a book that I really enjoyed and got me to think in different ways. Uh, It's Surely You're Joking, Mr. Feynman. Richard Feynman's a famous uh, physicist and he's done all kinds of crazy things. One Nobel Prize is all of that. And this is just a really approachable, uh, funny book of his life, but it also it gets you into some uh, some great scientific topics as well. So uh, definitely check it out. It's a very easy read. Don't be intimidated by the fact that it's written by a physicist. Love it. Uh, mine, I'm just going to be self-indulgent. I'm going to tell you, go read my article. If you liked this topic today, um, I, this URL is horrible. Just search this, this title expertise, why you need it and how to get it in Google. And, uh, it'll come up. It'll be in the show notes as well, obviously. But, um, I think if you're into this topic and you want to learn more about it, it's a really, really helpful in-depth post. Um, it's actually one I'm pretty proud of. I think that one thing I have a tendency to do is write really long form stuff and not put the time into promoting it, which we've talked about on the show already. Mm-hmm. But this was from uh, 2016, actually. And I think it's one of the things that has the most staying power that I've written. If you're not into that, though, the resource of the day I was going to share is a book called Pandemic 1918 by Catherine Arnold. Uh, Balaji Srinivasan, who we, we highlighted yep. as one of our creators of the day early on, um, he tweeted a list of four books about the... 1918 Spanish flu pandemic, which had some different aspects to it, namely the fact that it was in the middle of a world war. And uh, this book is the first of them that I have read. It's very educational. And I find myself repeatedly highlighting sections and saying, oh, just like right now. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of scary, the degree to which history is repeating itself in this current moment under different circum, you know, different contexts in the world. But if you are interested in the historical perspective on why a lot of scientists have these predictions about things like it's slowing down over the summer or why it spreads the way it does or why we're at home and staying away from being in person together, it'll shed some light on some of that just in terms of where the learning came from. Love it. All right. As we wrap up for the day, one, read Barrett's post um, because it is really good as far as where to dive into and go next on this topic. But then I would start by looking at you're like defining your taste. What are the things that you really love? What are the things that really stand out to you as uh, being great work in your field? And then go to that deconstruction step. Like look at, okay, what would it take to close this gap from where my skill is now to where I want to be? You can put those into concrete categories of, okay, someone, this person is telling better stories. They have better editing. They uh, have better camera presence. And if you break that down, and then you can get into the specific skills that you can practice. And then the last thing is I would say, just know that this is very normal. So when you create something and, and you have that feeling of the sense of accomplishment, and then also immediately followed by the sense of dread and disappointment of like, that wasn't as good as I hoped. Just know that as much as it sucks and is terrible, that is normal. 
this too will pass with time. Actually, that's not true. It won't ever pass with time because your taste should just keep leveling up and getting better. So I'm sorry. That's a fact of life of being a creator because you and I have been doing this for a decade or more. We still feel it every day on each project that we're doing, but you will make better and better things. So that's it for today. Thanks for listening and we'll see you tomorrow. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Future Belongs to Creators. If you didn't pick it up from the show, we make a tool called ConvertKit, where we're on a mission to help creators earn a living by building software that helps you build an audience of loyal fans. If you want to give ConvertKit a try, you can go to landingpage.new to launch your next creative project. You'll be able to build a landing page and send emails for up to 500 subscribers totally for free. So again, that's landingpage.new. You can get started with your free ConvertKit account today. We'll be right back.